This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Tom Rath has a new book. It's called Life's Great Question. Discover how you contribute to the world. Tom is a researcher who has spent the past two decades studying how work can improve human health and well-being. His 10 books have sold more than 10 million copies, making him the number one best-selling author of nonfiction books in history. Tom's first book, How Full Is Your Bucket?, was an instant number one New York Times bestseller and led to a series of books and activities for kids that are used in classrooms around the world. His Strengths Finder 2.0 is Amazon's top-selling nonfiction book of all time. There's more. We focus in this conversation on life's great question, each copy of which has a unique access code to Contribuify. Dot com. And after taking the online inventory there, readers discover the top three areas where they have the most potential for contribution. Very useful stuff. In this episode, Tom and I discuss the importance for one's own health and well-being on focusing on how you can help others and contribute to the greater good, which is, he argues, a more effective way to think about career choices than single-mindedly pursuing your passion. We talk in very practical terms about the distinction between what uh, journalist David Brooks calls eulogy values and resume values and the many benefits that obtain from prioritizing the former. Tom describes his simple method for how to assess your own inclinations as a contributor. And we talk about the nonlinear form of just about every successful career, the ups and downs uh, that young people need to know. It's a crucial piece of advice, especially for those just starting out, which we both illustrate with snippets from our own histories. All this and more. Coming right up. Well, I hope you like the Work and Life podcast. And if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to the wisdom of someone who has been doing applied research in the area of strengths and well-being for decades, has a powerful personal story to tell and practical advice for learning how to lead a more meaningful life. It's Tom Rath. Tom Rath, welcome to Work and Life. Thanks so much, Stu. It's great to be with you. Well, it's really great to have you here. And 
I resonate deeply with your message and your ideas, and and specifically with the notion of helping others as a means for well liberation. Uh, how how you discover your particular contribution to make a difference in the world. It's 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 a way of enriching your own life. It's it's not a zero sum game when you when you give to others. Uh, or, or, or somehow contribute to the greater good uh, that you know it sort of takes from you, but rather it it's an energizer. It's a virtuous circle. Let's start with how you personally came to this after uh, an astounding array of uh, contributions in your research on uh, finding your strengths. Um, particularly in, in Strengths Finder 2.0, what was the epiphany for you that led to uh, your bringing us the wonderful work, Life's Great Question? Yeah, thanks for the question, uh, thoughtful question. Um, what really got me focused on this topic was when I stepped back, you know, you mentioned that I, I, ever since I was 16 years old, I had this life-threatening disorder and doctors estimated uh, I might live to age 40, roughly. I remember reading that back then, and uh, I'm now 44. So I, I once I hit that over-under on, you know, I've been trying to pack a whole life into the first 40 years, and then I hit that number, and I realized, you know, that was kind of a bad career strategy. So I was, <laughs> uh, like a lot of people, just stepping back and being real honest here, just trying to figure out what what's next, mm-hmm. and what really matters in life. And I uh, spent a lot of time working on that and some reflection, and uh what I realized is I took stock not only from my own standpoint, but looking across the spectrum of all the research I've been a part of on uh, positive psychology, workplace, and well-being in particular. Mm-hmm. What I realized is we've done a lot of good work looking inward. So we've spent a lot of time on personality. We've spent a lot of time on our passions. We've spent a lot of time on our unhappiness. But yet... You say unhappiness. On our happiness. On we've our happiness, yes. Go ahead. Talking about happiness, mm-hmm. talking about... Um, a lot of the topics that you and I have both addressed in some of our work and uh, looking at our personalities, which I've been a big part of that work as well. And um, the challenge is, though, if I had a friend who was really struggling in his own day-to-day life, the last thing I would ever do is recommend that he look inward and work on his own happiness. The first thing I would suggest is that he spend some time thinking about what he can do to help even one other person, because that's really what gets you moving forward mm-hmm. in the right direction, in my experience. So yes. as I started to look at that, what I realized is, you know, we've essentially spent a lot of time with books I've written and been a part of, with uh, self-improvement programs, with all kinds of initiatives, uh, looking inward at the supply side of the equation. What we haven't spent as much time on is the demand side of what does the world need from us? And I was inspired by a couple of things in particular. One was uh, Dr. King's real famous quote about life's most persistent and urgent question being, what are you doing for others? And yes, and he must I have was, been inspired by Ben Franklin, the founder of our great university, who asked a similar question 200 years prior. The noblest question in the world is, what good may I do in it? Same concept. Ab- absolutely. And then You know, more recently, I was kind of taken aback by watching a commencement address that Ben Horowitz, the co-founder of Andreessen Horowitz, gave Mm -hmm. at uh, Columbia University. If any any of your listeners have a chance to watch it on YouTube, it's an inspiring one. Um, But he talked about how real uh, great careers are the product of following your contributions more than following your passions. And that kind of brought it full circle for me about 
um, maybe we need to help people be more strategic and diagnostic about how they can spend their time during a day matching who they are with how they can contribute and what the world needs instead of primarily starting with and looking inward. What what do you think has contributed, Tom, to, to this bias uh, which you're identifying here? You didn't call it that, but I'll, I'll call it that and see if you disagree, towards uh, looking you know inside for what's going to make you happy rather than to take a kind of uh, outside-in view that allows you to see how who you are and what your distinctive competencies or strengths are can contribute to making the world better for the people around you. What's what's the source of that bias, do you think? You know, I think of us get I think a lot of us get a little lost with all of the different uh, information and stimuli and motivations flying at us in a given day where, you know, there's been some good psychological research on this and it is actually easier to go through a day and just kind of respond to the stuff flying at you. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a lower cognitive load. And as a product of that, we really don't take the time to step back and work on more substantive efforts or invest in a real meaningful conversation with a person or do some of those things that have the opportunity to continue and grow in our absence and to be more mm. meaningful over time. So, when you say continue to grow in our absence, you mean like your legacy or when you're well, no longer present I, in, a, in a part of the world, perhaps, or in a set of relationships that, that your contribution somehow stays beyond your physical presence? That's the long-term ramification. I think that, but it, you don't need to think in those broad strokes. I think if you okay. can acknowledge that, if, let's say you're working in a customer-facing role mm-hmm. and you're in a retail store and one customer comes in and she's really worked up and frustrated about something that's happened to her and experience with a company. If you can just get her back to neutral, that probably changes the entire trajectory of her day. <laughs> and that's a meaningful victory. We've got to learn to acknowledge in the moment. And you see it in mm. food service as well, where if, if someone's preparing food and they can physically literally see the person they're making food for they make better quality food it's more nutritious and they feel better about their work Mm -hmm. so if we can find ways to bring reminders of the humanity back into our work and how that work makes a difference for another person or i mean another example from my own work is if i know if i can spend an hour working on an article that maybe someone reads a few days from now a week from now a year from now that's work that can continue to grow even when i'm not putting time and energy into it during mm-hmm. the day. And so I think if we can orient at least a, a small portion of our day towards work that gets to continue and grow, that helps to add a little bit of meaning to our routine. You know, this this focus on how you can create value for the world around you, whatever that might be. Uh, Victor Frankl, of course, writes so powerfully about that in Man's Search for Meaning, about how he discovered that principle when he was a prisoner in the concentration camps during the Second World War, where he was a you know a, a psychiatrist and who eventually used this insight about the search for meaning, his survival, his very survival was was dependent on his capacity to take whatever he had to get out of his own suffering and, and to be able to help the people around him, and that those who didn't make it, uh, who weren't themselves killed, but who were just trying to hang on. They didn't make it because they didn't have anything to live for, which is to say that, you know, the idea that you are bringing to us now uh, to live for others. You know, it's a great example, too. Where I think I, that's probably one of the most influ- influential books I've ever read. Man Me, too. Me too. Me too. And that book that 
that book, I mean, it's, I, I obviously never ha- I had a chance to meet Viktor Frankl or um, wasn't, it was just, I was re- as removed from the source as anyone, but mm-hmm. that reading that book multiple times has had a pretty profound influence on my life and my behaviors and my learning and my work. And so are there things that we can contribute to? And I, I've learned to acknowledge and view that. So an hour spent helping my daughter, who's 11 years old, to recognize a few new things about a math problem she's working on. That's a meaningful contribution. We've got to take time to oh, acknowledge yeah. when, when you see some of that growth. So mm-hmm. we can begin to think about these little daily contributions we make and just take a moment to absorb the substance of it and point it out when other people do it. It really helps motivate some of our best work. And the other thing that yeah. brought to mind when you were talking about Frankel's work is that what I've learned in the last few years of practicing what I've been writing about is that when you orient your days, the more you can orient your days towards other people, you get out of your own head. It's just easier mm-hmm. and less stressful. Amazing, right? And, and, and yet so few of us are, are able to, to make that leap. Tom, how do you help people take that bracing step back for a moment to come to realize how they can indeed and are indeed contributing each moment? You know, that's what I spent quite a bit of time working through as a part of this book. Mm -hmm. I I think you alluded to there's a kind of a companion website, but that website asks people to build a profile about why they do what they do and how they want to contribute to the world and Mm -hmm. prioritize things. But a lot of that starts with... You know, what are the big roles you play in life? So uh, a couple months ago, David Brooks wrote a great piece in the New York Times where he talked about the difference between eulogy values and resume values. Mm-hmm. And and so it's kind of, for me, that's being a dad and a husband and a researcher and a writer. But what are the real plain spoken In that order? In that order, Tom? In that order. That's, yeah, that's a pretty good order. I, I would always prioritize those kind of family, personal relationships ahead of uh, about anything else that I do in that order. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I've and i learned from some of that work that, I mean, no one's going to care if you got to inbox zero today or have 10,000 followers on social media. What will matter are the things, the big roles you play in life, the big experiences you've had, what's shaped you and made mm-hmm. you who you are. But yet, when we get to know new people in the workplace, we so often default to resumes and job descriptions. And if if you ask me to go create the most sterile, impersonal means for summarizing a human being's work today, it would be a resume or a LinkedIn profile or a right. job description. So we've got we've got to do a better job there. We we do. Uh, but are you advocating, Tom, for? Uh for people to lead with, you know, that aspect of themselves that is particularly distinctive. I mean, if you were, if you were applying for a job now, uh, would you start with that diagnosis you got 18, 28 years ago, whenever it was? I don't know if I would start with that if I were applying for a job cold or start with some of those personal roles because uh-huh. of the conventional wisdom and the way it's structured today. Right. I think it's going to take some time to mm-hmm. make work more human and work more personal. We're getting there, but that's a multi Yes, and you're helping journey. us. <laughs> it's, 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 gosh, We're trying. Hard, in the moment, it's slow. But, right. Um, so I, over time, I think we need to craft a better relationship with our work over the span of careers and decades. But the in the moment right now, I would recommend that when you're joining a new team at work, that everybody take a moment and step back and say, 
here's why I'm excited to be a part of this team. Here's why I do what I do. Here's what's shaped my career. Mm-hmm. And here's how I think I can make the most unique contribution to this effort. Because That's so right, right now, Critical. what happens is we get a team of people together, and I usually bring teams of people together because they're passionate about the same things I am. They probably look like me. They probably have similar motivations and so forth. It's a pretty homogenous team, to be honest. And then we all get together and we say, yeah, we're excited about this. We start charging down the road. And then, you know, six months later, we all realized we all had the same goals. We were all trying to do the same things. We were overlapping, and we didn't get very far because we didn't build a very well-rounded mm-hmm, team. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think if we if we can force some of that dialogue from the outset, mm-hmm. it, it just makes everything move easier, and we move in a complementary fashion instead of in a way that overlaps and so forth. Yeah, and I know you've done a lot of work, I mean, really significant work on helping people to identify with their particular uh, contributions are their strengths are even with uh, with kids just starting out like in college and of course I've had a 35 year career here teaching at Wharton uh, and have counseled oh, thousands of students here uh, and it's it's really quite remarkable how difficult it is for most you know 18 to 22 year olds in in today's environment to find a way to have sort of the courage and, and encouragement to ask those those challenging questions about themselves. And, and it's as if nobody ever asks them, uh, you know, where have you, you know, where have you come from that uh, in your experience has really touched you, has really moved you that you want to you want to make sure you're 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 giving voice to in some way and bringing into your life. Uh, the, you know, the signals, the expectations from society, from parents, from friends to ignore those uh, ideas and, and values as to what they can bring, um, make it make it a kind of cage, a prison, really, for so many young people today. Have, have you found that that's still true? And is it changing? Uh, and I guess most importantly, what can we be doing to help young people to be more well capable of discovering their unique contributions yeah it's a great thought because one of the i mean a lot of times i think people have this hope and aspiration that you're going to get you're going to fall out of high school or college into the ideal or perfect career but i've been interviewing people for 20 years now and i've yet to meet one person who just fell right out of their education and into a near perfect career and Mm -hmm. have a nice linear trajectory that's Looks like a smooth line on a chart going uphill. You know what my first job was out of college? What was it? Take a guess, Tom. Come on. You've gotten to know me now for 15 minutes. You should figure it out. Um... I can't. I, there are too many guests. Of course. I'm being I'm being stupid. Please forgive me. I was a New York City taxi driver. Really? That's correct. Wow, I could spend an hour asking you questions about that. That's why I kind of threw it out there because I want to see now. Uh, now that you know that about me, I, you probably think a little bit differently about what I'm what I'm about and what I bring to you know to my work and to even to this conversation, right? That's a, yeah, I, yeah. That's awesome. I, that's that's one of those life experiences I'd love to learn more about. Well, we're not going to dwell on that today, <laughs> but but I, I offer it here just to give an illustration to your important idea, which is that people just don't pop out of college and become like you know the the magic whatever that they think they're going to be. Tell us more about what you've seen in, in your work and helping people to to discover 
you know, who they are and how nonlinear the paths of virtually all of us are. Yeah, and I think a part of it is accepting that, you know, they're going the the curve of a or the arc of a career, a better way to put it, mm-hmm. is something that's very spiky along the way. You're gonna mm-hmm. have a few you're gonna have a year or two of great progress and you're gonna backtrack for six months, and you're gonna have a little pop and it goes up and down and up and down. And the right answer isn't always to just jump to the next job. I think one of my uh best friends who passed away a couple of years ago and researcher uh, Shane Lopez used to mm. continually say to kids in college that uh, great careers are made, not found, and that it is mm-hmm. possible to, I mean, there's a lot of good research has shown it's possible to craft the job you have into one that's at least much better, maybe even one that you love, and so to not give up too quickly and to work at that. And I would suggest that yes. in addition to taking that mindset of, it's always a work in progress as mm-hmm. long as you're moving forward over big spans of three, five, ten years, you're headed in the right direction. The trajectory is probably what matters. But if you can, in a very pragmatic way, say, in the current role that I'm in or in a role that I'm thinking about, here are the things that the customers around me, the clients around me, the family around me, and the community around me needs most, and to be really uh, diagnostic about here are specific mm-hmm. things that people are lacking and need need and that's let's say that's point B and point A is who you are your natural talents what mm-hmm. you're good at what motivates you how can you draw some direct lines and connections between yep. point A who you are and point B what the world needs and start to think about how you can more efficiently meet those needs over time I think that's a better what the world needs creates better dependent variables than asking about your own passions, which may not be that relevant to the rest of the world. And by dependent variables, of course, you mean outcomes that that we care about in terms of what we're trying to create with our careers, like uh, recognition and a sense of fulfillment, if not uh, material gain. Absolutely. Not not to mention further, uh, a sense of you know, peace, harmony, well-being about what it is that you're doing with your life. Yeah, and that's a key point because I I think work should make people better in the process. Right on. I, 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 so, and right now it's not happening. So uh, Jeff Pfeffer wrote a book last year called uh, Dying for a Paycheck. Yes, and, yes, we uh, talked about it on this show a couple months ago. Very important book. More- a very important book. Jeff's one of my good friends. I admire more than anybody. A morbid title, but it's a good summary of the current <laughs> relationship between people and their work. Yeah. And how um, do, what do you learn from that? What I learned from that is, on average, work is making people's health and well-being a little bit worse. And I, I don't think it needs to be that way. And in a lot of organizations, it's not that way. And I think each of us as individuals needs to raise our own expectations a little bit so that we have an expectation that we leave work with a little bit more energy than when we showed up. And if you ask our spouses, our partners, our children, our best friends, they would say that we're better off because of the work that we do today. And in most cases, we're not even thinking through that lens today. Companies have gotten really good at discerning how much discretionary effort they're getting out of us on a Mm -hmm. monthly, quarterly, annual basis. But we haven't done enough work to determine that our lives are better off in a more holistic way because of the work that we do each day. Yes. And, of course, the best sources of data on whether or not that's real, as you've just pointed out, and I want to underscore it, are the people who see you, uh, who who feel you, who are connected to you in an intimate way, your friends, your family, whoever. 
you are with beyond the bounds of work. And so it's crucial to do that step B. What do people need? How am I affecting them with what I am doing every day? Uh, how do you help people to to find that information so that they can indeed get smarter about the impact that work is having on their whole lives? Yeah, I think one thing for people to think through is how do you eventually, sometimes we need to work for a paycheck and acknowledge that's going to be the case for a while, yes. but eventually how do you push beyond that paycheck and say, mm-hmm. what's the purpose beyond the paycheck? And I think that the first purpose you ask some good questions about do you have better relationships because of the job you're in today versus something else you could be doing or mm-hmm. a previous job. And I think to ask questions about are you more involved in your community? There are a lot of companies doing a very good job of this today, by the way, where because the company actively encourages people to be more involved in their communities and to give back and they structure it so that can happen. And so are you more involved in your community? Do you feel like you're serving the world more because of your work that you're doing? And um then I think the other question to ask is, as we were just talking about, is your career on an upward trajectory because of the work you're doing today? Because, you know, I was just reading a, a fascinating study this morning about, you know, there's this conventional wisdom that people say, oh, well, lottery winners aren't actually happier because they win the lottery. Well, over time they are. There's some good longitudinal work on this emerging, mm-hmm. but they're just a little bit happier because they won the lottery. Whereas if people have sustained unemployment for a period of time, that's the one thing that significantly dents your long-term well-being. So the, our job does matter because it is our identity in most cases. And so we need to make sure that our careers are on an upward trajectory because mm-hmm. of that. Tom, let's continue. I did ask you about your views on universal conscription. What do you think? I absolutely love the idea, because I I think the one thing that's lacking most when I hear people talk about career direction, we've got we've got a lot of inventories. We look at personality and the like, and their interest in inventories and so forth. The piece that's really missing from all the interviews I've done is mm-hmm. the immersive experiences, and it's these experiences mm. that really shape who we are and what we do. But yet, there's no way for people to yet, at least in kind of a virtual way or anything else, to be kind of rapidly immersed in a series of experiences so they get more direction. And I think the ideal thing would be if uh, young people did need to spend, I don't know if it's three, six months or a year, whatever the time period is, actually immersing themselves in some major experiences like that. I, that Doing that before you plunge into the work world, I, I can't think of many things that would be more valuable at this point. All right, so let's get on that, Tom. I'm going to push for We're it. We're on it. <laughs> uh, our kids need it, and much more importantly, Boy, I think the the society needs it because without that, you've got. Um, and uh, folks, I, I will get off my hobby horse on this uh, in just a moment, but I, I think this is part of the problem that we started our conversation with, Tom. Is that you know, there's there's far too much of an emphasis on uh, when we speak to young people implicitly or explicitly in terms of you know their what we what our expectations are for their lives and careers the focus is far too much on as you were saying personal happiness and gain rather than what you've got to give and how important it is to see yourself as part of something bigger and uh, college doesn't do that right mm-hmm. Not at all. Right? It, it's all, it, it's so much of it. Not, I mean, not entirely so. I mean, we're, we're trying to change that here and in, in many universities, but uh, 
you know, a service experience of some kind uh, really shifts shifts your mind. Um, and I I believe it ought to be universal. Let's let's see where that goes in in the uh, in the months and years ahead. Now, to stay with the questions for young people, how what's your best advice for people coming out? You you know, you, you said earlier. I mean, coming out of college, that you know, to to see that it's nonlinear and that the process is one of discovery. So, in practical terms, what do you tell people when you're out there uh, speaking at universities or in companies that are wanting to you know, make make the best use of the labor market in terms of people just coming out of college? How do you help young people to ask the right questions of themselves and get over this bias? You know, yeah, I think that one of the things that motivates me most and motivates a lot of this book is I mentioned my kids are 9 and 11 right now. And mm-hmm. by the time they're entering the work world, we've just got to have better mechanisms for matching people with jobs. We like mm-hmm. we actually, as a society over the last decade, we've done a better job with Match.com and Tinder and the like matching people romantically than we have with careers. And I guess that's need- because romance is more important than money. I, I guess. Tom, you going to argue with me about that? I don't think so. No, no. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to get myself in trouble. <laughs> um, but the thing that I encourage people to do, mm-hmm. young people to do, is to step back and try and map out what are the th- – I mean, instead of just looking at what their parents have done, what society's influencing them to do, what are any moments where they feel like they've experienced kind of success through their experiences mm in serving other people and what are the Hmm. things the causes and things that they believe in most deeply and how could they start to connect a few dots whether it's through a nonprofit service project as you've talked about or an internship or through their first career experiences to connect some of those dots with how they first of all how they do something that makes a substantive contribution to even one other person they feel good about. And then Hmm. I think that the second thing I've been challenging people to do is how can you see the people you serve really literally? So Mm -hmm. if if you're doing something and you're in in a call center and you don't get to have any experience with the people who you're raising money for or the people who you're serving from a customer response standpoint, you're not going to be able to see the meaning enough to understand why it matters as much as it does. And you talked about a driving a taxi cab. I mean, there's a, there's a great way to actually at least see the people you're serving and know who your customer is well, and yes. have that direct connection. But you just you look in the rear view mirror. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, but if you don't have that direct connection, how can you bring some of that to the surface? Because mm-hmm. I think over time, if you can't find a way to do that, you're going to struggle. So that gets, again, to the job crafting and the design of jobs to make them more significant in terms of the social impact that you're having through your work, whether that's with the end user or just the people who are in the office uh, or the, the manufacturing facility you know, next door, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's any human impact that you're having that's, that's key. Is it not? Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the, that's the key piece of it. And to understand, I think it's okay to acknowledge in your first jobs that, yes, you do need to make ends meet. And you, I mean, if you need the wages to, for food and shelter and to provide some basic sense of financial security, but it's also important to make sure that you don't just keep climbing a pointless ladder once you've reached the 
place where you can provide sustenance mm-hmm. and make sure that you're putting food on the table and the like. Because I've, I've seen and evidence of this and many, many anecdotes of it where people get hooked into that kind of reward cycle and they just keep going and going and going. Whereas after a certain point of income that you need to provide financial security, there's, there is a clear point of diminishing returns of yep. just chasing another doubling in income or another advance in a paycheck versus more meaningful, purposeful work. Absolutely. Uh, and the evidence is clear on that. Now, it's hard to really grasp that when you're struggling and you're on your way up and you don't see a path to having financial security. And so that's, your, you know, on Maslow's hierarchy, you're pretty low down and, you know, you're just, that's all you can think about is how do I get a job and feed myself and put, you know, a shelter over my head and, and perhaps those who are dependent on me. It's hard. It's hard for so many of, uh, of us in, in the world today to, to step back and, and look for something beyond that. So for those who are really in the throes of it um, in terms of you know, struggle, how do you ha- what do you have to say to that segment of our society? You know, I think in that segment, the thing to keep an eye on is, mm-hmm. and I've done a lot of work on financial well-being and what that means. Yes. And it's, it really gets to financial security, which the underlying factor there is, are you really stressed about money on a daily basis? And if you're continually stressed by a lack of financial means on really a day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, I think it's probably a good idea to have that at the very front of your radar screen. And to also keep in mind that you can still count the meaningful and positive influence you have on other people. So if you allow both Mm -hmm, of those things mm -hmm. to kind of continue to motivate you in parallel, until you get to the point where on most days you don't have constant financial stress and worry. And Mm -hmm. once you get to that point, then I think it's a good transition moment to allocate even more time to finding work that makes you a better friend, makes you a better parent, and thinking about that kind of more balanced relationship between you and the work that you do where you're getting something out of it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's, it's not easy when you're, when you're in no. the thick of it, um, but it's certainly true in the, our research and, and uh, you know, the, the body of evidence and anecdotally and certainly what we know from the world's religions that are still alive, uh, you know, they tell us all the same thing, uh, that... What what's going to be important at the end of the day and at the end of your life is uh, is the relationships that you've had and the impact that you've had on the people around you. So why is follow your passion bad advice then? Well, I think the problem with following your passion is that it essentially presumes that you're at the center of this big universe and everything else should start to rotate around you and mm-hmm. fall in line over time. And, you know, the other thing is I may be passionate about, let's say it's golf or some obscure stamp collection, whatever it might be, that (laughs) really doesn't make a bit of difference for another person. Wait, so are you a stamp Um, collector, Tom? Are you revealing something about yourself now? I I, I was when I was young. Okay. I I got out of that nerdy mode at some point. Hey, Um, let's let's not be hating on uh, stamp collectors. (laughs) No no offense to fellow stamp collectors. Numismatists. Um, Yes. But... 
when you if you anchor everything around your passions, I, I just I think that that's the wrong outcome to start with mm-hmm. because it's unlikely to lead to fulfillment for you, and it's far less likely to be as helpful for society. Mm-hmm. And so, what you mentioned that Contrivify profile that yes. readers can build on the website. And the way the way I arrived at those contributions, those twelve contributions that people kind of rank and stack and during that exercise, mm-hmm. I went and looked at the, the United States uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics has a big database of all the jobs that people actually get paid to do in the yep. society value mm-hmm. in the United States. So I looked at all these job categories that people get make money for on a daily basis and narrowed down to about 50 practical things that people just do every day. And that's on the Contribify website if listeners are interested in checking it out. So from mm-hmm. those 50 things that people do each day, that's what those 12 contributions stem from, are actually just kind of practical brass tacks things that people need on a daily basis from organizations and careers. Mm-hmm. And by doing this analysis, in in some, what is it that people glean from? What do you want them to? How do you want them to use the the output from the uh, from the Contribify? Um, analysis or diagnosis? I I would hope that people would use that in two ways. One is to have a much more uh, personal description of who they are and why they do what they do for their own career planning and sake and to kind of prioritize how they can have a big influence and contribution in this world. The second way I would hope people would use it is Mm -hmm. those 12 contributions are segmented into these three team buckets. If I think almost every team basically needs to create something product or service. They need to have relationships with one another and energize one another, and they need to operate and get things done and continue to scale. And so I would suggest that people sit around, whether it's with one friend or colleague or ideally with a whole team, and say, how can we make sure that our team is filling in these three basic needs so that we can work together as productively as possible and get things done as smoothly as possible? To create, to relate, to operate. And so you get you get a readout on on your own impressions or your self perceptions, right? On on where you're more inclined to to contribute is that the essence of the um, of the results of the assessment? Yeah, and it's kind of an iterative exercise too for uh-huh. a team because right now, if I pull a team of people together, I'm going to incidentally pull together a bunch of people who have the same passions, probably look a lot like me, and we all want to move charge forward in the same direction. Uh, and then we come back six months later and like, oh, wait, we were all the same type of people doing the same stuff and it was just overlapping. And so I think it's important instead of doing that to step back when you're forming new teams and say, how can we each kind of divide and conquer based on how we each think we can uniquely contribute and to have some clear expectations so we're not all moving forward doing some of the same things. Let's let's turn in, in our last segment here to uh, our families. Because you you said earlier uh, that your primary your in order in terms of priority the roles that matter most to you are spouse and father I got that right right yes so in light of that um, how does that that prioritization and what the world needs from you and where you can make the most contribution how does that uh, affect what your daily life looks like. Oh, that's a fun question for me to think about right now, as you <laughs> say, right. because as I worked on this book, I, I, as a part of that profile, you type in your those roles you just mentioned. Uh-huh. So I did, I did give some thought to putting uh, husband and father and then writer and researcher third and fourth. And 
just doing that has helped me in the last year or so to tell myself that it's all right to cut out in the middle of the day to invest an hour in helping my son and his friend to work on their jump shot or whatever. Some of these things that uh, may be more meaningful and long-term investments of my time Mm -hmm. than getting back to uh, 20 emails that claim they're all urgent at the moment, right? (laughs) Mm-hmm. And to focus on some of those, especially the investments in other people, whether that's uh, one of my kids or whether that's uh, someone I'm working with and helping them through some things. Mm-hmm. I think that's helped me to put things in perspective in the last few years by consciously saying, here's my order of priority. And so, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on this show uh, and that many people ask about, you know, when they write to us or call in, um, is about how you create a meaningful boundary in your head between, you know, work and the other commitments in your life. So do you have any particular practices that you use to ensure that, when you're working on your son's, uh, coaching your son on his jump shot, that you're not thinking about preparing for this interview with this guy from Wharton that you have to deal with in a few hours. <laughs> you know, my my one big my one big boundary is fully being fully absorbed and attentive in what I've committed to at that time. I think. Uh, I, I, one thing I learned a lot from, I worked on a documentary called Fully Charged a few years ago, mm-hmm. um, was deeply influenced by some of the research showing that if I take my device out and set it on the table, even if the darn thing's off and not vibrating or buzzing or blinking or anything, that sends an implicit message to right. everyone around the table, statistically degrades the quality of conversation for everyone. Mm-hmm. Even if I'm in a room alone and I take it out and put it on the table, it decreases my cognitive ability by 10, 15%. So I've really been cautious in recent years to be known as the one who doesn't use his phone in a public setting. Mm-hmm. And when I'm whether I'm with my kids or I'm talking to you or I'm in a meeting, I make sure to ask as many good questions as I can and then close my mouth, keep my device stowed away and genuinely listen to those responses. So uh, you won't catch me on the basketball court checking my phone or answering a call. Mm-hmm. And when I'm working and I'm focused, you won't catch me tuning out or jumping away from that either because I as I mentioned I think I've learned to prioritize my time so that I might spend at least an hour in a given day mm-hmm. working in a concentrated way on an effort that can continue to grow mm-hmm. a week from now. Mm-hmm. I, I really find that to be a powerful and simple very practical way to think about your choice of where you're going to focus your attention. What's the impact that that this is going to have, what's, that it's going to last somehow beyond the moment mm-hmm. uh, to keep yeah. that. Go ahead, please. Elaborate. Oh, no, that's been, I was just going to say that's been a good uh, anchor for me mm-hmm. in recent years to say, you know, is this something that can continue to grow even when I'm not, essentially when you're not there watering it actively? Because I think if we orient our thoughts towards some of that, it makes it easier to push some of the urgent but not as important things to the side. Mm-hmm. So what's, what's your greatest hope for your kids then, Tom, as you think about the world that, that they're going to need to somehow serve and make better with their lives? My greatest hope is that they enter a, a world of work that makes people better in the process. 
um, I think a lot of us, my, my grandfather used to talk about this, about how, um, you know, right now we think about people getting work done, but his, he always talked about his hope was that uh, we get people done through work. Hmm. And I think we're at least a decade from uh, effectively, on average, getting people done through work. But I, I think we can get there over time. And a part of that is each of us as individuals raising our expectations and raising the bar a little bit about wanting to have work that makes our families better and makes our communities better. So for the people listening who supervise or manage or lead uh, others in whether it's at work or in their community, in a religious group, political group, uh, what, what's the best piece of advice you've got for them that comes out of your most recent work on Life's Great Question? You know, if for people who manage and lead in particular, I don't know that there's anything more powerful that you can do for another human being than to uh, genuinely listen and observe and help people to spot some things they're doing great that really make a difference for another person that they may not have noticed on a regular basis. I'm One of the things I've been most impressed and refreshed by in the last year is that when I talk to the leaders at the very highest levels that I admire most, mm-hmm. they're the best askers of questions, they're the best listeners, and they actually inject more uh, energy and development into my life than anyone else I talk to on a day-to-day basis. And so hmm. I think that the new currency of leadership may be great questions, deep attention, and observing and recognizing things people haven't noticed. And if you grew up in a different era where that wasn't true, what's what's your your best advice for how to try to develop those capacities uh, that are inherent in all of us, I'm going to argue? What's the best way to, to really tap into those uh, aspects of who we are as human beings if, if you haven't been trained for that or if the company cultures that you've been raised in have somehow extinguished those features? Well, yeah, you know, I think the good news is we can all start doing that today. And we can, no matter what role you're in right now, you can observe someone doing something and when you spot that they're doing it at a level of excellence you can point it out and call it out and there's almost no downside to trying that and doing that today the one the one thing i would encourage people who are mm-hmm. thinking about that to from personal experience i know sometimes it's easier to say oh we have tomorrow and to put things off and i and i know mm-hmm. from my own personal background and history and experience we don't have tomorrow you have today to invest whether it's 15 minutes or an hour in the growth of another human being. And if you invest in that relationship, it will continue to grow in your absence. <laughs> yes. Tom, uh, we are we are approaching the end here of our conversation. There's so many more things I want to ask you about. You've got a lot of wisdom you've developed in your still relatively short life, even though you've, you've, you've lived beyond your expire date, right? Absolutely. <laughs> What's your prognosis now? I'm doing really good. I'm in pretty good health and uh, hope to continue for uh, quite a long time. Well, we, we all hope that that's true, Tom. What's the best place for uh, people to learn more about uh, not only life's great question, but uh, the other work that you have brought into our world? Yeah, they can learn a lot more about the Contribify profile on life's great question at Contribify. It's C-O-N-T-R-I-B-I-F-Y dot com and more about any of the work we've talked about at TomRath.org. 
Well, all right. Tom Rath, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was a really enjoyable conversation. I hope you found my conversation with Tom Rath to be inspiring and that it sparked some ideas for ways that you can help yourself by helping others. Here now is a challenge for you, an invitation to take the core idea that Tom talks about in Life's Great Question and use it maybe in the next interaction you have with someone. Or perhaps it's the interaction after that. Ask yourself this simple question. How does my approach to this interaction with this other person create value for this other person beyond the time we are together? In other words, what's the legacy you're creating right now in the people that you interact with? I'd love to hear what you discover from this experiment if you try it by doing what you can to put the idea of contribution in the forefront of your consciousness, of your thinking. So get in touch with me. Let me know. Write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.